Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production this month by journalism students at the University of Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. I'm Sarah Garrity. And I'm Lara Stimson. In this episode, we look at issues that have been brought sharply into focus during the pandemic. Some are flashing danger signs, others have shown gaps in our society, and others make us realise that success can triumph over adversity. First up, one of those issues the pandemic has exposed is the availability and cost of housing in Australia. Rising rents in particular have forced people to turn to public housing and crisis accommodation simply because they can't afford other options. Reporter Brooke Roth found some creative solutions as she looked into how the urgent need to put a roof over everyone's head might be addressed. One of those solutions is the concept of tiny homes for people in need of a bed and support services. you come in is the kitchen with a window, sink, cooker, fridge freezer and a table and chairs. Right at the far right side is the bed. For many of us, having a warm bed to sleep in, hot water and a place to cook food is something we don't think twice about. Behind the door is the washing machine, a laundry sink, the hand basin and mirror, the toilet in the corner and a shower. But 63-year-old Gillian Isben is grateful for her tiny home after health complications and abusive relationships left her with limited money and desperate for a place to call home. At breaking point, she reached out to Accord West, a non-profit organisation in Bunbury, WA, who were launching their first tiny home trial for those vulnerable of homelessness. Now Gillian is one of three residents holding a six-month lease in the tiny home complex. It's given me the opportunity to be out of a bad situation into my own space and my own mind space. Gillian has the Salvation Army next door, support workers and connected mental health services. Accord West CEO Evan Nunn says the Bunbury Tiny Home Project implements the housing first principle, giving people a safe place to sleep and then necessary support services. And having been to Canberra, he thinks the tiny home idea could cross borders. I went to the shopping centre at Woden, just outside. There was a number of homeless people sleeping along the little laneway outside. And I thought to myself, well, I wouldn't have expected Canberra to have that presentation of that problem. Canberra resident Astrid Watts has various disabilities and says tiny homes could cut her risk of homelessness. With tiny homes, we could adapt them for these people's disabilities. I'm one of those disabled people. I've recently faced homelessness myself. It would mean I would not have to think about where I might have to move in the next three months or will I possibly find a place with the rental market being so competitive and it would mean a place to call my own without thinking twice. CEO of YWCA in Canberra, Francis Crimmins, disagrees that tiny homes can be a long-term solution and believes their temporary nature is a pitfall when it comes to fixing such a complex issue. It might have a boutique appeal for those of us who might be spending a week end away in some cute little place overlooking a vineyard, but I don't know whether it's appropriate for long term. It really needs to be a housing first approach and just having more transitional temporary accommodation does not allow somebody to actually commence rebuilding their lives. ACT Council of Social Services CEO Emma Campbell agrees Canberra needs more investment in traditional housing models that benefit the needs of more people. 
I don't think necessarily that tiny houses or some of these alternatives will meet the needs of larger families and women leaving domestic violence situations. The challenge is not the failure of public housing and community housing. It's just that we don't have enough of it. And if we want to have enough of it, we need more investment in it. The ACT government recently announced a $100 million investment in growing and improving social and affordable housing, but none specifically targeted towards building tiny homes. Brooke Roth was the reporter. Another issue highlighted by the stress and strain of the past couple of years has been financial security for women. Firstly, the gender pay gap still exists. Women on average earn 14% or $255 a week less than men. Then it's compounded by the time women spend out of the workforce caring for children. And time out of the workforce also slows down progress in their own career. As a result, studies have found women on average will retire with 40% less superannuation than men. Even a scheme to let people access their super savings to meet other financial pressures during the pandemic provided short-term relief, but long-term consequences. Our reporter, Lauren Light, has been speaking to women about their experiences that they hope others will learn from. Before the pandemic, Australian women were already retiring with lower superannuation balances. Once the COVID-19 pandemic hit, the federal government looked for relief measures and allowed people to access their super accounts early. Two million women alone applied, with some of the approved emptying their accounts, including Canberra's Jess McGowan. I mean, if I was still working when COVID hit and my job situation hadn't changed, I'm sure I would have been fine, but things were getting pretty bad. So um, when they offered up, the actual superannuation withdrawal. That was my only option. I had nothing else. The superannuation was sort of the to the, the saviour and yeah, it basically saved me. Although that super money assisted last year, this has left people like Jess struggling even further in the recent Canberra lockdown. I don't have any super left to take. So, um, I mean, I've got a little bit, a little bit, and that's it. Um, so even if it was available now, it's not really anything in there that I could take anyway. In a way, I kind of wish that I hadn't done it last lockdown and was able to go at this time instead because this is a worse situation for me financially than last time. But, you know, you kind of can't change time and go back. And they're not offering it now anyway. But I think if I had the super there and they were to offer it, I probably would. Now she is worried about what money she will have to retire on. Jess isn't alone in feeling like this. Another Canberra local, Millie, who was unable to work last year, also took out superannuation through the program. I do have regrets. Like, um, I probably wouldn't have taken the second lot out. We probably would have just tried to make do with what we had. Yeah, it wasn't a great choice, but we really just, we threw that away really, really quickly. I personally do regret that. Research shows that situations like Jess and Millie's are common, but how did it get to this? Caitlin Preston is a financial advisor from Canberra who explains how COVID will impact these balances. People who are out of work and are not contributing anything to super during this period um, will have like a significant impact on their balance moving forward. 
you know, those industries and jobs that are impacted by the pandemic at the moment, they generally are on the like lower paid um, kind of roles and, you know, have those part-time casual workers. So if those people, you know, aren't contributing at the moment, then they're going to miss out on all those compounding effects of those contributions over the life of up until retirement, essentially. While COVID has caused many challenges, money expert Caitlin has some general advice for people like Jess and Millie. Just around like making sure that you combine or consolidate those super accounts to make sure you're not paying any additional fees or checking the insurance within those fees. Another important thing is understanding what type of investment option you're invested in within your fund. That doesn't cost anything to change. Making some small changes and starting those conversations about retirement early is more important now than ever for women. The changes they make now isn't going to have an immediate effect, but hopefully there will be a lot bigger kind of impact um, and we'll see the improvement in the future. But in saying that, there is still um, definitely a lot to go. That was financial advisor Caitlin Preston ending Lauren Light's story. For a very long time in the so-called war on illicit drugs, there have been two distinct camps. One argues that possession of hard drugs such as heroin, ice and cocaine is a criminal matter for police and the courts to deal with. The other maintains it's a health issue that should be focused on helping people with addiction and dependency rather than putting them in prison. As the ACT Legislative Assembly considers a bill to decriminalise the possession of small amounts of hard drugs, Rania Yallop takes a look at both sides of the debate. Labor backbencher Michael Pedersen introduced a bill to decriminalise personal use of illicit drugs in February. Under the new legislation, those found possessing small amounts of drugs would be fined and have the substance confiscated instead of facing criminal penalties. According to Mr Pedersen, we need to look at new ways to treat drug users. In the ACT, you can go to jail for two years if caught in possession of small amounts of drugs. Now, I don't think that's right. I think people that use drugs do not need to go to prison. They need to have a conversation with a doctor be directed to relevant educational materials and have that substance confiscated from them. We need to help people that use drugs and sending people to prison does not help them. The ACT introduced similar legislation that decriminalised the possession of small amounts of cannabis in 1992. Although this type of drug law is not a new idea, there has been significant concern about the bill in the Canberra community. According to President of the Australian Federal Police Association, Alex Caruana, there could be serious consequences if laws are relaxed. You look at the communities that are outside of Canberra and outside of Australia that, are, that have got really bad ice epidemics there. Crime rates in terms of violent crime rates are significant. There are some areas, parts of Australia, where ambulances won't attend a scene unless they've got a police officer with them. And uh, we'd hate to see that start happening in Canberra. We need to do what's best for the community and the ACT government has a duty of care to make sure that the community is safe. And I don't think that decriminalising drugs is a way to keep the community safe. The bill takes a harm minimisation stance towards drug use trying to reduce the damages caused by illicit substances. Professor of Law at the Australian National University, Desmond Manderson, says that the problems associated with drugs can come from the legislation, not just the substance. 
there's a lot of evidence that most of the problems related to drug use, even the drug use of very serious drugs like heroin, are not related to the drug itself. They're related to criminality. So we've actually created the very problems that we thought we were solving. When similar laws have been introduced overseas, governments have invested heavily in health services to treat drug users. AFPA President Alex Caruana says that Canberra's services are currently not up to the task. Let's face it, we don't have the infrastructure in place to look after the people in our community now. So if we decriminalise it and we are expecting an increase in people using it, or if we're expecting an increase in issues arising from the use of drugs, if we can't deal with the current numbers that we've got, how are we going to deal when the numbers increase? Organisations working with drug users in the ACT agree that services are already overloaded. But according to Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, Chris Goff, the legislation will combat the issues associated with having a criminal record, not just with drug use. We know that they're currently struggling to meet demand, but we know that there are long waiting lists to access residential rehab. But I don't think that that then means that it's a good reason not to do this law reform. We know that there's two issues with drug use. One is the harms that drugs do to a person. But then we also know that drug laws themselves, the criminalisation of drugs, causes harm. Attitudes towards drug laws are changing across the globe. According to author of the bill, Michael Pedersen, after a century of criminal penalties, it's now time to try something else. We've had prohibition laws when it comes to drugs in place for 100 years in this country. And somehow in that time, 43% of our community have used an illicit substance. I don't think we can arrest our way out of this problem. We've been trying to do it for a very long time and it has not worked. I don't think it's about to start working. That was ACT Labor member Michael Pedersen. Rani Yallop was the reporter. This is Making a Difference, a Junction journalism production by journalism students at the University of Canberra. It's a common piece of advice, don't trust what you read on social media, but that doesn't do justice to the nuggets of gold that do crop up in our feeds, which, in some cases, can change lives for the better. Our reporter Ebony Hines came across one such nugget when she was scrolling through videos on TikTok, and this particular video has proven invaluable in helping young people with their own health diagnosis. Here, Ebony takes us into the world of ADHD talk. ADHD has gone viral on TikTok. The app, which became popular for its viral dance challenges, allows users to share short videos on any topic. Now, millions of TikTokers are using it to spread awareness about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I am so ADHD, never bored of me. Keep you on your toes, change your whole routine. Put a finger down, ADHD edition. Hello and welcome to all of my inattentive type ADHD symptoms. Tell me you have ADHD without saying I have ADHD. Where are all of my ADHDers? Always changing, I'm unpredictable, baby. The hashtag ADHD check has over 580 million views and is part of what has been dubbed ADHD talk. Users on this side of TikTok share their symptoms, their experiences with ADHD, and put a finger down challenges, which aim at suggesting a diagnosis. For University of Canberra student Maddie, these videos quickly became a hyperfixation. It became something that I started to do as a coping mechanism to not just be alone with my thoughts, I guess. TikTok's algorithm tailors a For You page for each user. 
a unique and endless stream of content based off your habits on the app. So the more Maddie scrolled, the more specific her For You page became and the more convinced she was that she too has ADHD. It started making me kind of focus on every tiny little thing that I was thinking, feeling, doing. Maddie shared this with her therapist and was able to see a psychiatrist to talk about her concerns. He ended up diagnosing me with ADHD, borderline personality disorder, and complex PTSD. My doctor calls it the um, 20s woman variant. We function in a different way almost to your stereotypical ADHD. Like I never would have thought that I had ADHD years ago um, when I presented with the things that I, you know, still do today without that kind of awareness. Uh, I'm Professor Brenton Prosser, Director of the National Centre for Social and Economic Modelling at the University of Canberra, and I've been researching in attention deficit disorders for over 20 years. ADHD is a, a condition that's diagnosed by a medical specialist. Um, indeed, it's typified by inattentive, hyperactive or impulsive behaviours above the sort that we would normally expect in the development of a young person. The discourse on ADHD talk suggests that ADHD is underdiagnosed in women. Is there any truth to that? Look, for a long time there's been a higher prevalence rate um, of diagnosis amongst males. Um, I think we always have to factor in that while ADHD is a physiological uh, condition, um, it also occurs in a social context. So it's in, in what's deemed to be a problem is informed um, by social expectations. Hyperactive boys tend to draw attention to themselves and so that's uh, part of the reason why um, uh, many of them have been diagnosed at higher rates. I think what's happening now is there's greater awareness of uh, inattentive forms of hyperactive uh, behaviour or alternatively um, more, more uh, targeted assessment of the needs of, of people that aren't quite as you know, uh, obvious and that means that uh, women who may not have, or young women who may not have previously been diagnosed, there's a little bit more attention and awareness and education. Earlier this year, Riley was also diagnosed with ADHD after learning about the symptoms on TikTok. But I don't know, it was also just really like a big relief to realise that that was what I was experiencing. Um, like that it wasn't just like how I am as a person and like seeing that spelled out for me in like TikToks was very like, yeah, okay. And it wouldn't have been information I don't think I would have sought out if not for TikTok for some reason, the algorithm deciding I had it. Thanks to TikTok, an app famous for viral dance challenges and funny videos, Maddie and Riley have both been formally diagnosed with ADHD and are finally receiving support. That was Ebony Hines with that report. Creativity in healthcare doesn't just live on TikTok. It's been the foundation of a program in Canberra that supports teenagers who are grappling with mental health challenges. The Messengers program at the Tuggeranong Community Arts Association started as a creative outlet for troubled youths. 20 years on, it's inspired the careers of musicians, artists and filmmakers and is now being hailed as a model in early intervention. Rebecca Moore takes up the story. What lifts your mood when you're down? Is it having a chat, listening to music, reading a good book or losing yourself in something creative? 
music is a really great way to boost our mental health. But the visual arts is a really positive strategy that can be used, really building our health wellness um, and building those adaptive responses. That's Heidi Prowse, the CEO of Mental Illness Education, ACT, and she says that creativity is key in helping young people understand mental illness. So early intervention is important. It's probably the most important thing in terms of a future and building a strong outcome for our young people. Recent figures released by the Black Dog Institute show that one in five young people are currently experiencing psychological distress. And this includes young people in the ACT. But programs such as Messengers run by Tuggeranong Arts Centre provide a creative outlet for young people experiencing early signs of anxiety, depression, self-harm and other mental health issues. At Messengers, 9 to 25-year-olds develop a range of artistic skills. I was born profoundly deaf, so without my cochlear implants, I can't hear a single thing. And growing up, I struggled mentally with anxiety and depression and ADHD. Bryce, as he'd like to be known, is 20 and a Messengers graduate. I got involved with the Messengers program when I was 16 and I loved it. I got to express my art and be social um, and I stayed with Messengers till... I was 18 and they hired me. Bryce is now an assistant in the program and has seen firsthand how the arts can help young people struggling with their mental health. To me, it was beneficial by allowing me to express myself through art and be part of a social group that had similar interests to me, as well as developing my social skills. I think the program is very important as it allows us to openly talk about the stigma around mental health. Messengers includes a range of activities such as photography, drawing, ceramics and spray painting. I'm definitely passionate about mixed media, so using anything and everything, and street art. So I combine the two, so it's called mixed media street art. I like to go really big, do big pieces and bright and colourful. Um, I do some graffiti sometimes, so lettering and characters and monsters, um, cartoons. Bryce says the program has given him the confidence to showcase his art, as well as teaching him how to become more confident within himself. Messenger's CEO Karina Keyes says the goals of the program are to reduce the stigma surrounding mental health and build artistic skills. The Messenger's program was established as the way of engaging youth in school again. There's more research now being done that kind of indicates that Involvement in the arts can improve uh, the general well-being of people and their self-confidence. Karina Key says that the creative arts could be embraced more widely in education settings. I think that there should be programs in school that offer an alternative for kids who, who might not learn the way everyone else learns. Bryce was initially referred to messengers by his school counsellor and is grateful for it. I've learned strategies and skills to help me cope and better see my future. Um, and throughout it all, I've had my art. Doing this has given me more opportunities with other art institutions 
and you know, also increased my knowledge on mental health in adolescents and kids. That was Bryce, one of the participants in the Messengers program. Rebecca Moore was the reporter. Although the pandemic has cast a shadow over our lives for the past two years, we can still cling to the hope of brighter times ahead. That's certainly the way Olympic athletes are looking at their lives, with the next Games in Paris just two years away. Ryan Murphy has been running the eye over two Canberra athletes who hope to be on the starting line in the French capital in 2024. Canberra-based athletic star Jai Edwards had the season of his life in 2021. On your mark. Set. The 1500m specialist recovered from injury to break the national meet record, qualifying for his first Olympic Games. The races prior, everything was almost perfect. You know, I got some huge PBs. Edwards' dream run to Tokyo turned nightmare in his opening heat when a fellow runner clipped his heels effectively ending his race and his first Olympic campaign. I finished that race and I was obviously pretty shattered. What sort of hurt the most is, you know, there's probably three, four, five guys who were in that final that I've beaten before. Having reflected on his journey to date, the 23-year-old has now set his sights on Paris 2024, beginning a three-year cycle of jet-setting to major events around the world and intense training. I'll be 26 then, probably a bit more peak age. But I, I still feel like there's a lot of room for improvement, which is very exciting. And while Paris is the main goal, because the Olympics are just something else, they're just something special, but there's the World Championships in Eugene, Oregon, and then a few weeks later, doubles up with the Com Games in Birmingham. Barry Horgan, a performance scientist at the Australian Institute of Sport, explained what the next three years may look like for Edwards. With any athlete, you're going to look at it in a three-year plan or a four-year plan, and you'll typically have you know a preparatory block where you might be building volume for moving to more competition specific over the successive cycles and, and, and years leading into it. Meanwhile, Canberra's own Max Berry has been making a name for himself on the track, winning the 2021 Under-16 national title for the 100 and 200 metre sprint. The 15-year-old has been steadily chopping seconds off his best times, running a 10.91 personal best. Off and racing, a little bit of a stumble for Connor Bassas, but Tungaloa's gotten away well. Berry was left behind, Bassatil coming over. Watch Max Berry, he's tearing away from the field. Fonkham on the outside's looking good, but it's Berry. I'm pretty very happy with that. Like I've worked hard, I've had people around me help me a lot to get to that stage so I can win that race. If I choose to go down a path of athletics, which is looking pretty likely, you know, it's like this is a good first stepping stone for like the bigger races to come up in the future. Max's coaching duo, Faye and Stuart Todd, say the speedster has all the right materials to achieve great things in the sport. Anything is possible with Max if he puts his mind to it and if he wants it, what could happen and what could unfold in the future. He's got a good support network around him, people who love him and care for him, and um, he could achieve whatever he wants to achieve. AIS sports scientist Barry Horgan has also got extensive experience working with young athletes. It's probably as much of a good feel um, where, where you might see somebody and think that they have the, the bit between their teeth and the passion to go all the way. Jai Edwards certainly hasn't lost the bit in his teeth and is determined to right the wrongs of Tokyo. Yeah, it would have been great to finish better in the Olympics, but um, I was able to you know sit down and reflect and, and be pretty proud of um, where I've come from and I think it just gives me that fire in the belly. And now I've had that Olympic experience, there's nothing I'm, I want more now to be back there in 2024 and so on.
And Ryan's story ends this episode by the University of Canberra. The stories were produced in conjunction with ABC Radio Canberra. If you want to see more of the best student journalism in Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. And don't forget, a new episode of Making a Difference is produced every month. Just subscribe on your favourite podcast app. I'm Lara Stimson. And I'm Sarah Garrity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.